0: This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and
1: friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com writingexcuses writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 19. This is Writing Excuses.
2: Intro to role-playing games. 15 minutes long.
1: Because you're in a hurry.
2: And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm James. I'm Dan. I'm Cassandra. And I'm Howard. And we are very excited to be introducing for you all another one of our intensive courses for the year. This one is about game writing and interactive fiction. And so we've got two really incredible guests who are both experts in this field. And uh, they're going to be teaching us all about it for the next eight episodes. So, uh, James and Cassandra, introduce yourselves. Let us know who you are.
3: Um, I'm Cassandra. I used to work in Ubisoft Montreal. I've worked on games like Hyperscape. I've also done indie work for titles like Fallen London, Sunless Skies, Wasteland Tree, and I've done a little bit of tabletop work for D&D and World of Darkness. James?
4: And- I'm James L. Sutter, and I, uh, I'm mostly on the tabletop side. I'm the co-creator of the Pathfinder and Starfinder role-playing games, um, but I've also done a little bit of video game work. And so uh, between us, we're hoping to cover everything folks want to know. Cool. Well, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're very excited to have you with us. Um, Mary Robinette and Howard and I also have a little bit, a tiny fraction of, of, uh, of game work, so at least we kind of know what we're talking about. But let's jump into this, and uh, Cassandra, our topic this week is intro to role-playing games. What? Uh, where, where do you want to start us?
3: Uh, well, let's go back to like the bare basics of this, the very simplest definition of it. A role-playing game is essentially a game that allows you to inhabit a persona and sort of live out its life throughout the course of the game in In other words, you could be Bob the Accountant in your daily life, but in a role-playing game, you might be Sumerian, the Elf. What differentiates a role-playing game from, say, an action game or an adventure game is that the outcome is not necessarily predetermined. There are ways to get to the end, but in between you have side quests with different possibilities, different ways they might go, it might end Horrendously, in an ending you might not have been expecting, kind of like real life. And there are also inventories; there are stat-based system, and depending on what you are talking about, whether it is a AAA title or a tabletop game, those stats might come into play differently. Something that I think James might be very good at discussing. <laughs>
4: Yeah, um, well, especially because in tabletop role-playing games, uh, you have to do a lot of stuff on the fly, potentially, because the the nice thing about it is that in something like Dungeons & Dragons or Pathfinder, every your characters can do literally anything. That's the blessing, but also the curse, because if you're running the game, you need to be able to account for all of that. And so the thing to remember when you're writing for a role-playing game type thing is that you're writing a story, but someone else is writing the protagonist, and so you've got this balancing act because it's your job to make the story go where it needs to go, but it's the player's job to make everything makes you know make sense for their characters to make sure the protagonist is doing what uh, what they think the the character should do, and usually you're playing with multiple characters at a time. Um, So it's that question of how do you guide the players through choices that feel meaningful and independent and sensible for the character they've chosen to inhabit, but also is guiding them along the right general uh, story path. Um, So I'm curious, uh, Cass, what do you feel like are some good examples of that?
3: At least in AAA games, I think uh, Mass Effect might probably be one of the easiest examples to look at because you have the paragon and you have the renegade route. And even though you are still giving the player, you know, freedom of choice to go and do whatever they want, once you have it categorized as, all right, this is light side work and this is dark side work, you kind of teach them to go along the path that you need them to go towards the conclusion without ever feeling like you're holding them on a leash it's all about balancing predestination and free will. You are absolutely the invisible hand of fate. <laughs> Although occasionally you need to be a little bit less invisible, invisible, otherwise the player is just going to go off the rails. Uh, but what I think really is very interesting about writing for playing games, especially, is that if you're transitioning from, let's say, novel writing, you, well, at least I did. I had a pr- the trouble of constantly wanting to make things linear. I expect that the players would want to go a certain direction. They would need to follow the beats that I've given them. But the truth about role-playing games and designing them is you're giving them a setting. You're giving them a sandbox. You might be giving them a little bit of a map, like a toolkit, some directions on what to do. And you're kind of hoping that they will go in that direction. It is not necessarily true. Um, to reuse the metaphor about novels, it's kind of like turning your novel into an amusement park mm. and then setting the boundaries along of it. Uh, but what's it like doing similar things for, let's say, tabletop games? Because it is so much more open-ended with the game masters and so on. With video games, you have all those things preset by design, by audio, by the visuals, Man, I don't think those parameters do exist with tabletop games.
5: Um, years and years ago, 15 years ago, Steve Jackson said to me, all games are physics simulations. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me. And, and I keep coming back to it and asking, well, wait, this game isn't a, no, at some level, This is a physics simulation. (laughs) And the second one, um, and I can't remember who told this to me, uh, all role-playing games are improvisational theater. Um, Yeah. Talking about tabletop role-playing games as improvisational theater. And so for me, writing or playing um, or game mastering a a tabletop role-playing game is a balancing act between this is a physics simulation, and this is improvisational theater. I say improvisational theater rather than improvisational storytelling because the, we, we know we want the storytelling to happen, but the theater aspect is what suggests that this has to be entertaining rather than just narrati- narratively uh, functional narrative. I want it to be fun.
4: Yeah, I use that improv uh, example a lot when trying to explain role-playing games to folks. I often say like the game master who's sort of running the show is kind of like the director and then all of the players are like uh, actors and each inhabiting a character. And so you create a character and then sort of go through the story that the director is running, uh, trying to just act as your character would act and everybody's kind of building off of each other. Um, And that's what creates this loose, fun story that can go in different directions. Um, And I think that one of the things about that is, uh, like Cass was saying, you got to be careful not to be too linear in your story. You want to make sure that situations allow for multiple successful uh, resolutions, right? Like, you want to think about, you know, even if you thought, your first thought is like, well, they'll fight their way through this situation, you also want to be ready for them to talk their way through the situation or you know trick somebody or cause a distraction you know uh really con- considering the whole possibility space that's what you're creating as a game writer is sort of these situations um yeah mary
1: oh uh so something that occurred to me as you were talking is uh, one of my um one of my favorite dms I- i'm going to do a shout out to david spears uh but he said something about role playing that i um Really, it resonated with me a lot, which was that as a DM, he felt like what he was responsible for was curating the experience his players wanted to have. Yeah, and for me, that that made more sense than uh, than the the improvisational theater director metaphor because the director is trying to execute their own vision, um, and and a curator is trying to shape it for the people for the viewer. So, for me, it often feels more like um that there's there's a, a certain amount of uh second person um or interactive theater you know that that there is this this path, and that on in on one hand you can do a thing which I used to do in theater all the time, which is that you can give the audience the illusion of choice yes. Um, and on the other hand, you can say, okay, know what you, you do actually have a choice and I will, I will go with you on this journey and I will curate this. And, and I feel like those are two different modes of role play. Definitely.
4: Yeah. And I think oh, they're both think crucial. They're like, right, Cass?
3: They are definitely. Sorry. I think Dan was going to say something. I,
2: I Yeah, I wanted to jump in uh, with this illusion of choice. Two of the the best pieces of advice I ever got when I first started writing for role-playing games was, um, you know, first of all, somebody said that uh, as you're controlling this story, as you're, you know, presenting the options, um, you can, you know, if, if the characters come to a, you know, two roads diverge in a yellow wood kind of situation and you need them to get to a castle, either road is going to lead to the castle. Uh, But they get to choose which one they're going to go down. And that's kind of a a blunt force uh, illusion of choice. But then what you can do is add on to that and present, just make sure that the choices that you're offering are entertaining. And this is something that game masters can fall into accidentally, where they make a choice they don't want the players to make and they present it as being really interesting or entertaining, and then they're stuck and they have to improvise something. Uh, but when you're writing that, if you are, you know, presenting a scenario, you can just kind of fill it with a lot of interesting toys to play with. That, And then the players are going to immediately latch on to the ones that are exciting to them. If they see there's a giant fruit cart in the middle of the street, then they might think, oh, well, we could turn that over, or, you know, we could do whatever. If you make sure to put interesting characters into the space, that will lure them into talking to them. If you make sure to include a bunch of security cameras, then they will think, oh, well, we we might need to sneak around or find a way to disable those. Giving them interesting choices instead of just choices is a good way of guiding them.
5: If you've ever wanted a, a physical model, a visual representation of storytelling, good storytelling narrative flow for tabletop role-playing games, it's the pachinko machine. <laughs> the balls can bounce left or right, but they always go down. The balls cannot escape the machine. They start at the top, but then there are little decisions along the way. And at the end, yeah, there's there's multiple possible places the ball could land, uh, Tracy Hickman described this as narrative bumper pool. At any point, you have choices, but all of the choices are leading us in this direction, rather in the open-ended, you know, the world keeps getting bigger as my players run in any possible direction.
6: Oh,
3: that makes me think of the first Walking Dead game, honestly, which I think is a really good example of how that illusion of choice and that use of linearity just kind of worked. I remember articles just exploding after people started playing the game because people were so infuriated with how they never really had a choice at all. The game would tell you that characters remembered what you did. And it would set it up so that emotional resonance between one choice or another was just so harrowing. But let's say a character you decided not to help in one situation, you would eventually see them later and they will play a role in another set piece. But the thing that stuck with me most with that game and how it implements that illusion of choice is the ending. I think the game's been out long enough that... uh, a spoiler is <laughs> fine essentially at the end you have this 10-year-old girl seeing her surrogate father slowly transform into a zombie and you find yourself with two choices and they're both incredibly horrible one you leave like you run you go as far as you can from this person you cannot save or you shoot him in the head mechanically speaking none of this matters. The poor guy still dies. But the fact that this was presented to you with so much emotional weight. And like Dan was saying, like, these are toys, very morbid, but toys, but these are toys on each on the side of the road. And if you present things that are interesting and have resonant enough with the player, it doesn't matter that they know they're still going to one ending.
4: And, you know, I think the big thing about that is that the choices need to be tied to the player, right? Like, like in the example mm-hmm. you just gave, both of those are things that really, uh, like, you're making the call to drive the story. Um, and I think that's something people often run into when they're not used to running a game is it's really tempting to make the players not the main characters. You know, you'll have yes. that GM insertion character that, like, helpful non-player character, you know, the sidekick who's just happens to be better than the players in all these different ways. And, you know, the player tries to go one way and they grab them and steer them back on course. And like, you can do a little bit of that, but you really want to always make sure that your choices are being made by the player players and that they feel significant to the characters.
3: We're all NPCs in our real life. There's no reason to continue being one in a game.
4: (laughs) 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 That's
2: brilliant and uh, a little sad, but I love it.
7: Hey, writers. Are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today.
6: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate?
2: Um, I want to interrupt here and I have let this discussion go on uh, maybe a little longer than I should because we should have paused several minutes ago for our book of the week or our game of the week is how we're going to do it during this intensive course. And I believe our game of the week uh, this time comes from James.
4: Yeah, so the game of the week is going to be the Starfinder uh, role-playing game, uh, which I was the original creative director on. And that's all about... Uh, it's a classic, you know, pen and paper role playing game, and it's all about you know space wizards and laser ninjas, and it's science fantasy. So you can kind of do everything from Alien to Star Wars to Fifth Element, whatever sort of story you want to tell. You know, if you want to be a lizard with a grenade launcher or a bug, you know, priest of the death goddess, you know, you do whatever you want. Um, but I wanted to bring this one up because there's both the tabletop version that you can go find, and also there is a uh, Alexa version, an audio single player version of the game that I got to write, um, that is free that people can, if you have an Amazon Alexa device, you can just say, you know, Alexa play Starfinder. And I'm sure I just turned on a whole bunch of people's right now, but <laughs> I, uh, I have no regrets. You should play the game, um, because it's produced <laughs> by Audible studios and has you know, a full cast and it's really fun. Well,
2: and as of uh, this recording, just yesterday or the day before, you won a bunch of awards for that. Yeah,
4: game, we won some nice industry awards. Uh, I think like best voice experience and uh, best developer. So, yeah, it's, it's really a fun kind of new medium. And so it was nice to be able to bring uh, this game that I love in tabletop into a, uh, a voice version that people can play without, you know, having a group. You can just be playing it by yourself in your kitchen while you're making dinner.
5: My first experience with the Starfinder tabletop role-playing game book was opening opening it up and literally removing the pages so that I could use them as references because I was illustrating the uh, Munchkin Starfinder cards for Steve Jackson games. And it was easier to have the pages of the book all over the couch and the floor in front of me, than to have to pick up the book when I was drawing. I felt a little bad about it, but <laughs> not bad enough to not do it. And I got another copy of the book for me anyway. So <laughs> officially oh, forgiven. Well, I, I love this, and
2: and thank you for for using this as uh, our first game of the week because I think it's a great illustration of the fact that these this is you know viable writing like freelance or career employment opportunities. This is not just Mm -hmm. us talking about games because we love games. This is a job that uh, people have that, you know, people win awards for that people get paid for. And so we that's kind of why we're doing this whole class is those writers who want to focus on games or on interactive. um, You know, that it's a real thing and that it can be made to work. Anyway, we have gone a little over time, but I, I want to... This is our first episode of the course, so let's take a little bit of extra time uh, because I know that um, that Cass and James want to talk a little bit about pet peeves in RPGs. I was going to say,
1: if we don't get to talk about pet peeves, I will
4: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we should open this up to everybody. You know, maybe, Cass, if you want to go first, but I'm sure that everybody here has something they've seen before that... Uh, they feel like, oh, never do that.
6: Dead
3: Ends, I love Dead Ends. I grew up with the Sierra games. I grew up with King's Quest and I never lost my absolute hatred for how the game would just stop if, say, you looked at the mouse at the wrong instant. Um, with role-playing games, I feel like Yes, there should be failure, but the consequences should be interesting. It should be fun to die. It should be fun to see your kingdom crumble away. Just so you know, you can see like an octopus kingdom rise up from the ashes of it. What about everyone else? What are your pet peeves in role-playing games?
1: Mine mine is um is so I, I played D D all through high school, and uh, one of the things that was frustrating is that in this game in which I'm supposed to have all of these choices about who I can inhabit, there were all of these different body types and just forms for male characters, and mm-hmm. all of the women were this single, very sexy, scantily clad type. Like, everybody had exactly the same model body, and, uh, you know, as a high school high schooler who was already dealing with you know, all of the body insecurities Um, that was, it was like, but what if I don't want to, what if I don't want to wear a metal bikini? (laughs) So, you know, it's, for me, it's, it's uh, writers who are not thinking about um, all of the different type of people who want to play a game and therefore shut them out.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that uh, diversity of choices can also be um, a thing. Like people, even if f- folks go, oh, okay, I need to make sure that I cater to people, you know, in terms of what their character looks like, you also have to remember to cater to all the different sorts of decisions that people might want to make. So, you know, question your own things about like which characters get romantic subplots. Is it just the characters that you personally would be interested in? If that's the case, then you're making a mistake, right? You need to remember that you are not uh, your only audience. Yeah, I think Mass Effect,
2: which Cass mentioned earlier, is is a good example of doing that right. Uh, Because most of the characters are romanceable, regardless of gender, regardless of species, regardless of anything else. And you can really kind of curate your own story that way as you go through it because they took the time to add in all of that extra choice uh, one thing that uh, is one a, a pet peeve of mine I always used to think that I hated uh, big read aloud sections in role-playing game campaigns and then once I started writing them I realized I actually like read alouds I just don't like long ones um, you know if, if something goes on for more than a paragraph it, in my opinion, might be a little too long. I remember I played a, a D&D campaign with James and it begins with almost a full page of, here, let me read you this gargantuan introduction. And uh, we were all just laughing by the end of it because we couldn't even remember how it started. It was so long. Uh, take the time, you know, use use read-alouds like that to... You know, to set an a mood or an ambiance, or to get across a really great character beat that you really want to be in there, uh, but then step back and let the the game master and the players kind of tell their own story.
1: That's right. I forgot that it's game master these days. I'm so old. <laughs> <laughs> um,
5: my my own my own least favorite is. And this is a this is a sin that can be committed by the game master or by other players. I don't like other people at the table telling me how my character feels about something.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Oh yeah. Don't no. You describe what happens and give me the opportunity to react because that's why I'm at the table.
4: I'd also just throw out, um, also, especially in tabletop, where there's the game master and the players, there can sometimes be a feeling that it's the game master versus the players. And like we were saying before, like that's never the case. Your job as game master is to make sure everybody there has a good time. That's the goal, right? So you want to, you don't want to be uh, so easy that your players never feel, fa- you know, fear failure um, because that reduces tension. But you're also not trying to kill off your characters. You know, it's not the characters versus you as the manifestation of their story. And so, um, you know, the number one thing is just make sure that everybody's having fun. Yeah. similarly, don't allow players to be jerks under the guise of, well, that's what my character would do. You know, we're all still, we're there to have fun and tell a story. Cass, what were you going to say?
3: Uh, no, I was just going to say that autonomy is just, like, imperative in this situation. And, yeah, having jerks try to force their ideas on you, thats pushes against a player's autonomy. Similarly, telling a player exactly how they feel. Yeah, no, no, those are just pet peeves of mine, too. I'm just sighing about them in a very short amount. of time. We have left <laughs> on an episode that's already run over.
2: <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we do need to be done now. Um, but I believe we have some homework.
4: Yeah. So, uh, homework hopefully will be pretty easy and fun for folks. I, I just want you to spend some time playing a role-playing game. That can be a video game that can be tabletop, um, but play a role-playing game and take note of what's fun and what's not. Awesome. That sounds
2: great. Okay. Thank you very much for listening to our episode. Uh, we are going to keep talking about uh, game writing for the next seven weeks, and we hope to see you again. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, you are out of excuses. Now go write.
1: This has been Writing Excuses. Your hosts for this episode were Cassandra Kaw, Mary Robinette Kowal, James L. Sutter, Howard Taylor, and Dan Wells. The episode was engineered by Marshall Carr, Jr., Mastered by Alex Jackson and brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com/slash Writing Excuses.
4: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants—they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies.